I'm on. Okay. Yeah. If you got your Bible, can you go to Psalm 131, please? Here's the word of the Lord. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And Lord, I ask that as your people, we would do just what the psalmist is exhorting us to do, to hope in you, maker of heaven and earth, who in the fullness of time sent your son in the form of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on the cross, and you highly exalted him and have given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You know, this morning I'm, I come to you broken. Just like you are. You just manifest it in different ways. But what do I mean by that? I mean this that our lives, to one degree or another, are filled with anxiety. Our lives, to one degree or another, are filled with hopes that have not been realized. Our lives, to, for one degree or another, we feel alienated from ourselves, from each other, and from God. Our lives, in many, many ways, bear the marks of the fall. Jesus is redeeming that in his good time, by his Spirit. And this morning, again, the word of the Lord to us is an invitation to trust in him like a child. Like a child. Um, I had the privilege of having a childhood that was, for the most part, uh, carefree. I didn't, have to, I didn't have a lot of worries. It was only when I got into my adolescence that things got really tumultuous. And uh, I'm grateful for that. Well, some of you in here have had tumultuous childhoods. And yet, the word of the Lord to you is the same word of the Lord to me. And that is, regardless of what you have gone through, regardless of the pain and bruised soul you may have, you can trust in the God who is there. You can trust in the God who gives you breath. You can trust him because he and he alone is faithful. He and he alone makes a promise and fulfills it. He and he alone is the perfect artist, composer, who is always composing his melody in each and every one of our lives, using our distinctives to glorify himself. And so I want us this morning to look upward. This psalm addresses us today in a time in Western civilization 
where for all intents and purposes, people are filled with anxiety, filled with worry, care, filled with fear of the future and even of the present. And this psalm, even though it was given over 2,000, 3,000 years ago, it's still the word of the Lord for today. This psalm is part of what is called the songs of ascent or songs of degrees. And these are psalms that are given in a particular time in the history of Israel when they are celebrating the feasts of the Lord, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. And here David, the, 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 the psalmist, the king, is talking to us. And he was, as we know, he was the shepherd boy, the son of Jesse. And this son of Jesse learned to trust God, and he learned to trust God through very, very hard circumstances. He was the shepherd boy. Remember when he faced Goliath. I want to read this to you. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul. And he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fall on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, I want you to appreciate this. He's a boy, a young shepherd boy, probably no taller than I am, okay? And he's going to fight a guy who's seven, eight, nine feet tall. We're not sure how tall he was. He was huge, and he was their champion, and he was battle-hardened. And so David is telling Israel, and he's telling the king, don't be afraid of this guy. I'm going to take care of him. And David was not going to take care of him on his own strength. And I think this is really critical for us because in our anxieties and in our pains and in our fears, we get our eyes off of the God who sustains everything. David wasn't. He did at times, but right here he didn't. And let's continue. Then Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth. And while he, Goliath, has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And his journey of trusting the Lord began when he was young. I can't imagine the fear that must have gripped him in a real way. Have you ever fought a beast? Have you ever been scared of a pit bull, for example? Well, isn't a pit bull... This, this is a lion. This is a bear. These are beasts that are ferocious. And yet, somehow, God gave him courage. And that courage was grounded, really, in his relationship with God. 
And so with defeating Goliath, Saul became David's enemy. King Saul became David's enemy for over 10 years. He pursued King David out of jealousy because he saw that God's hand was on him. So he defeats Goliath. Things should be well, right? No, because at the end of the day, you've got a a Saul, a king, who is jealous and wants to not let go of his power, and he pursues David. And there were many times David had the opportunity to kill him, but he didn't. Why would he do that? Well, because David was anointed to be the king over Israel by Samuel the prophet. But that didn't manifest immediately. It took several years. Meanwhile, this man, who is a man after God's own heart, and showed tremendous character and loyalty to God as he dealt with those that were in power over him and those who abused him, he was nevertheless a great sinner. And he learned to throw himself on the mercy of God. He learned to trust God with the past, with the present, and with future events. And each and every one of us, we're in the same place in a very real way in our own biography. And this psalm shows us essentially two things. It shows us childlike trust in the Lord. David gives us his profession of trust in the Lord. And then he exhorts us to trust in the Lord. I'm going to read this again. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul, Like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And so what we're going to see here is that David's thoughts, his thoughts propel his actions. And so do your thoughts and my thoughts. They move our lives. And he says... Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Now, David addresses him as the Lord, Yahweh, the God who spoke to Moses, the I am, who keeps covenant with his people. He is the God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And by the way, Jesus When he said to his opponents, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus was saying, he is Yahweh. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we are talking about David before Jesus' incarnation. But this is all pointing to Jesus. So David's heart and his eyes are not proud. His heart, his feelings, his will, his intellect does not have the disposition of pride. He does not have a high brow, which is an idiom for arrogance here. In other words, he doesn't have the attitude that overvalues himself and undervalues others. He doesn't do that. He doesn't make much of himself. And I'll tell you what, 
he had experiences with God none of us have had. He, he, he demonstrated courage. I don't know any of us in here have had the opportunity to, to exhibit. He was the king. He was the king of Israel. He had power. He had wealth. He, he had everything at his disposal. But he knew God. In his brokenness, he knew God. And he was not a proud man. Listen to what, what David, what God hated, David hated, what God loved, David loved. Not perfectly, not all the time, we know that. But his, the trajectory of his life was he loved God. Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Again, Proverbs eleven two, when pride comes and comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Paul in Philippians says this, 1 through 5, chapter 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Psalm 31, 23. Oh, love the Lord, all you his godly ones. The Lord preserves the faithful and fully recompenses the proud doer. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the hum humble. What God hates, David hates. How about us? Do we find ourselves hating what is evil and clinging to what is good? Do, 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 do you, do, do, is your biblical knowledge, do, do you realize that we are to hate things? We are to hate what is evil and love what is good. And the ground of what is good is God. And what God hates, we are to hate. And what God loves, we are to love. So his thoughts lead to actions. He says, Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Now, he probably wrote this as a shepherd boy. We're not certain. But when he's saying... Talking the, the word to involve or concern, it could mean to presume to walk or be preoccupied with being great or achieving accomplishments. When you are younger, the sky's the limit. You've got dreams. You've got hopes. You've got aspirations. You want things to tackle. You want to achieve and you want to conquer. At least that, that is the, 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 the sentiment of a lot of youths that I have known. Um... It's just something that's in there. You want to feel like your life matters, don't you? Who in here doesn't want to feel like their life matters? Like they aren't valuable or important? Or that your deepest 
dreams that you don't want to share with anybody because you're afraid maybe they'll, somebody will shoot it down. Those are things that are precious to you. Why do we even display that? I think it's because we're mirroring the image of God. God as creator. Before the worlds were created, it was already, everybody knew what he was going to do. And as the great artist, great achiever, the great craftsman who begins a work and completes it, we mirror that in our lives in different ways. But we do nevertheless. When he's talking about great matters or things too difficult for me, I think at the end of the day, it could be referring to him as king. He was anointed king of Israel. He walks and talks with God. He's tending the sheep. One day, Samuel goes to the sons of Jesse, and he's going one after the other, after the other, after the other, and God is saying, nope, it's none of these guys. It's like, do you have another son? Well, yeah, David. Well, where is he? He's tending the sheep. Go get him. Which is, which is like God. We don't think like he does. He values things we don't because his purposes are hidden from us. And so we don't see what he sees. Well, he knew what he was going to do in the life of David. One day David is anointed by Samuel the prophet to be king over Israel. But his reign did not happen for at least 10 to 15 years. Imagine knowing you have been chosen to be the ruler. And not only does your family look down at you and don't, doesn't respect you at all, but in a sense kind of despises you. You're the, you're the runt of the litter in essence. That could have caused tremendous anxiety in him. I could see where that would cause me, a lot of angst. It's like, okay, let's get on with it already. What's going on? What's going on? It doesn't seem like what was promised is even going to happen. In fact, it seems like the exact opposite is what's going on. Meanwhile, you've got a, a safety issue. Why? Because you've got a madman for a king, Saul, and he is wanting to destroy David's life. David is hiding in caves. And more than once could he have taken Saul's life, but he didn't. David understood something. David understood that, no, if you're, if you're going to uh, come down, God is going to do it. It's not going to be by my hand, Saul. It's not going to be by my hand. And that shows David trusting God, that he's not going to put himself in the place of authority before God exalts him and before it is time. He was patient. David was patient. I was thinking a lot about patience. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that love is patient. Patient. 
What is it about patience that is so difficult for you? I know it's difficult for me. I think there's a lot of things involved in it, but I think the fact that we are time-bound creatures and we only have so much time, we want to feel like we're accomplishing something that we are, hence, significant. Um, hence, I'm, uh, I'm significant. I'm, uh, I'm accomplishing something. I only have so much time. I want to reach that, whatever that is, that's in your mind and your heart to accomplish. And you're thinking that reaching that is going to ultimately fulfill you. And I think what in the scriptures we see, and it's so hard to stay living in, is no, your greatest need and your greatest goal if God is real, is to know Him and to walk with Him. Regardless of your position in life, regardless of aspirations, regardless of whether you feel marginalized or not, it doesn't matter. Your greatest goal, if God is God and He exists, absolutely should be to know Him and to walk with Him, to love Him and to make Him known. Because he is ultimate. You can't get more ultimate than ultimate. And so many distractions, so much noise, so much chatter really uh, fogs us up. It, it, it tends to numb us to the realities of the God who is speaking to us. I know it happens to me. I know it happens to you. We're in this thing together. <clears throat> so those of us that call ourselves Christians, do we forget God's faithfulness toward us? Do we forget that His Past actions of kindness guarantee present and future kindness toward us. Guarantee that we can trust him ultimately alone. Do we forget that? Do you find yourself wanting to manipulate situations in a way that demonstrates a lack of confidence in God's faithfulness? I know I'm kind of nebulous right now, not very clear, but that's okay. I want you to think about this. I'll let God talk to you in his own way to you. What, what areas in your life are you demonstrating that, no, I don't know if I can trust you. Now, obviously, I am presupposing something that you do have dreams and goals and aspirations for a fulfilling, productive future. I am presupposing that. I also know that there are some people that don't have this at all. In, a, in a, an increasing, growing population, and young people are killing themselves because they don't have any of this. Because they are believing somebody's word. 
of what their worth is. Because they are believing somebody's word of what the nature of reality is. And if it's not grounded in the God who is there, who's revealed himself both in scripture and in creation, it's going to lead them astray. Now, do you have a Saul in your life? Do you have somebody who's persecuting you? Do you have someone at work or, you know, somebody you know in your family who prods you and seems to be completely and totally against you? I don't know if your life is being threatened by this person. David was definitely the object of the most powerful man in the land, wanting to kill him. And David, instead of taking vengeance, he trusted God. He patiently waited. He patiently waited for God to move on his behalf to bring about the promise that he was going to be king. And this patience required him to go through painful suffering and loneliness. Loneliness. I don't think there is a human emotion more painful. I don't think. Definitely it's at the top of loneliness. feeling all alone. And you could have that feeling being in a surrounded by family that loves you. Or surrounded by horrible circumstances. But nevertheless, loneliness, a state of the soul, the soul aware that in a very real way you're on your own with your emotions with your pain, with your fears. In one way, you are. But in another way, it's in that loneliness that David and ultimately our Savior demonstrate to us where you could say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. Because I'm, I'm actually not alone. I'm actually not alone. David repudiates pride in his thoughts. As being the state of his soul. And he asserts that great things and things too difficult for him. Are not what he wants to pursue. His dependent disposition on God is what follows in verse 2. He says, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. The thing that comes to my mind right now as an adult is, boy, I miss having a wonderful night's sleep. I don't remember the last time I had one of those night's sleeps where it's just like everything is just like perfect. It's like, I wake up and it's like, no anxiety, 
It's just like, oh. it's been a long time for me. How about you? There's something going on, right? There's something going on. But David is saying something as a man. His dependence on God is like a child. Why we as people have a difficult time trusting God at the core, at the core is unbelief, unbelief in who he is and what he has revealed, and belief in something else. A belief at the, at, at the, at the core is a view of the world that you trust to be true, and therefore, because you trust that idea to be true, you live your life accordingly. That's what a belief is. That's, the, that's a simple way of explaining a belief. Everybody has them. Some are rational, some are irrational beliefs. Some are based in fact, some are not. And if you think about it, and you've heard me say this over and again, you are and I are either going to trust in the uncreated creator's word, he who is eternal, self-existent, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, all-just, all-wise. We're either going to trust in that word or we are going to trust in the creature's word. Finite, needy, lacking in every way. And we will live our lives accordingly. You can't get away from it because this is God's world. He designed us in this way. It's interesting that he spoke the worlds into existence. It's interesting, the very source of life is the very place where the enemy of our souls attacks, has God said. In the garden, has God said. Ooh, a very well-placed question. Doubt. That continues to today. So what do you do? Well, David's disposition was a disposition of trusting. Not just because he had head knowledge, he actually experienced God. And this is where I think the difference comes. There is a difference between growing up in church and hearing these things there's another thing of, okay, what you're hearing, you're actually, you're putting it to practice. You're, you're actually reading the word. You're actually praying. You're, you're actually wrestling with the, the, the question, God, are you real? Do you really exist? Or is this just, you know, what my parents uh, think is, 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 is real and good, but I could take it or leave it? Do you wrestle with ultimate issues? Because you're going to have to sooner or later. You're going to have to sooner or later. And it's better sooner than later. 
You start believing a lie long enough, you start thinking it's true. Once you're in that position, it's very difficult to get unwedged from that. And God can do it, and he does do it. But make no mistake about it, you believe a lie long enough, and it's very difficult to get out of that. If somebody can come back at me and say, well, you've been a Christian for how long? You believe this? What if this is false? I think it's false. Great. Give me an argument. I could be wrong. Give me an argument. I'm not afraid of your arguments. I'm not afraid of being wrong. The implications of what you believe. What's, what's that called? in um, Risk to reward factor. Risk to reward. If God does not exist, and uh, I think he does, well, you who don't think he exists should be glad because that belief is constraining, putting constraints on me to not uh, uh, hurt you or to to, uh, take things from you or to commit adultery against your spouse. That's a practical one. Now, now, if, 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 if that's the case, well, then if God does not exist and, and I'm delusional, when I guess, I guess we're actually better off because I'm living out the implications of my beliefs and they actually benefit you who don't believe because if I lived out the implica- if you lived out the implications of what you believe that there is no God and we are here by an accident, there's nothing that constrains you from taking from me those things that are most precious to me. Now, if God does exist, and um, you don't think he does, and he has revealed himself in his son, and you reject that, well, then at the end of the day, when you do die, you lose everything, and I gain everything. And so don't ever think that beliefs are neutral. No belief is neutral. Every belief has a position, and every, and every position has an opposing view. And at the end of the day, you've got to ask yourself, well, what is ultimately reality? What is true? What is real? Scripture says that Jesus Christ is reality. He's reality. He grounds it all. David says, surely I've composed and quieted my soul. Over here, when he says surely, it gives force to the contrast between what he was not doing Namely, ignoring God. He was not ignoring God. Now to give emphasis to what he is doing, he says, I have stilled my soul. Which means that he is now in a place in his soul where he has quieted it. He is in a meditative state. Now, this is not a meditative state where you empty your mind from thought. That's not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is fixing your thoughts on who God is. Who God is, what the situation is, who you are, and what are the implications of it, because he's real. We have difficulty here. We do have constant chatter. We have so much chatter that we do not allow ourselves to consider the God who is there. I'm telling you, if you don't control the chatter, If you don't control it, if I don't control it, we will not be able to experience this. Won't be able to experience it. You get in the car, boom, the radio's on. You wake up, boom, there's music. There's got to be constant 
something going on because I don't want to be quiet. Could it be, could it be that that is a tactic of demonic activity to keep us anxious and to keep us from beholding and trusting and walking with God? I think it can be. He has quieted his soul. This means it's a process. He wasn't all quiet. None of us are. Right? <laughs> I woke up this morning. It's like, oh my gosh. I had these horrible thoughts. I'm not even going to tell you what they were. But they were like, well, what the heck is that? They, they were claustrophobic thoughts. Okay? And it was horrible. Oh. Oh, it's like, stop. He says, he still his soul like a child. Like a winged child rests against his mother. My soul is like a winged child within me. He's content in God. There's no more striving. There's no anxiety. All his needs are met. There's no more striving, no anxiety. All his needs are met. He's content in God. What are you looking to be content in? What am I looking to be content in? Psalm 116, 5 through 8 says this, Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have rescued my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I can see this being many times in the life of David. You bring it post-resurrection Jesus. I mean, David died. Everybody dies. But Jesus said, if you believe in me, though you die, yet shall you live. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall not die, shall live. I didn't read that correctly. Close enough. The last enemy in the book of Hebrews talks about that it's death. And Jesus came to rescue us from that cold tomb. Death is evidence that God 
keeps his promises. Death reminds us that things are not the way they ought to be on the one hand, but on the other hand, they are the way things ought to be because God said to Adam and Eve, obey me, you'll live, disobey me, you'll die. The first Adam brought, plunged us into death. The last Adam plunges us, sweeps us up into life. Those of us that love him and are called by him. So David's profession, it's radically God-centered. In his thoughts and his actions, he is God-dependent. And that's the rub. And when his soul submits to the reality of God, regardless of his situation, in his life, what follows is a peace that Jesus purchased for us to experience. And there's two images that come to my mind right now of peace in the midst of, regardless of the circumstances. Daniel in the lion's den. He's sleeping. He's sleeping in the lion's den. No harm came to him. Jesus sleeping in the boat below while the waves are tossing that boat and the disciples think they're going to die. Something happens when we walk with God because we know God and when the whole world is freaking out, the man and woman of God, regardless of how old they are, they rest in the faithfulness of the God who is there. See, the strength that we have is not our own. It doesn't come from within. It comes from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. And that childlike dependence that David is talking about here does not just happen. It happens when we respond to God in the storm of life we're in. What storm in life are you in right now? What is it? What turmoil in your soul do you have? <clears throat> what is it? Well, David talks about his disposition. And now finally, he exhorts us, he exhorts Israel to trust in the Lord. Have faith in God, Jesus said, right? He's telling them, brothers and sisters, do as I have done. And I think probably one of the reasons why our effectiveness as believers um, in reaching people is uh, we don't live out what we say we believe. So when we don't do it, we're not being salt and light. We're not being 
we're not, we're not following Jesus' footsteps. We're just living like non-believers, like the atheist. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Hope, hope. It's not a, a, a pacifying wish of the imagination. It's the solid ground. This is important. It's a solid ground of expectation for the righteous, for the people of God, in God's faithfulness to his people. It is the soul recalling promise fulfillment. It is the soul, it is our hearts and our minds remembering the word of God, that what he said he would do, he did. And if he did that, then what he said he's going to do, we could trust in it. We could trust in him. We could trust in him. Promise fulfillment. Promise fulfillment. From, from Genesis to Revelation, you see that throughout Scripture, God promises. He keeps his promises. Do you know how frustrating it is to deal with people in business who say they're going to do one thing and they don't? It's frustrating. It's frustrating when a spouse says they're going to do something and they don't follow through and do it. I've, I've disappointed my wife maybe once or twice. You know, or children, or parents t promising their children something and then the parent fails the child. That's disappointing. Or a friendship where you're, you know, you promise something and it goes awry. That, that's tough. God never breaks his promises. He never does. He never breaks his promises. This term, O Israel, hope in the Lord, it has to do with persevering in your expectation. It means you've got to be patient. If it hasn't manifested, hope in God. Hope in God. We're time-bound, and we have a hard time with being patient, especially when things are difficult. But hope in God. Hope in God. Don't cast away your confidence in the Lord, who is a self-existent, uncreated creator, who never changes, who always keeps his promises. Think about this. All of our lives are constantly changing. Our age, our health, our marital status, our work, our living situation, friendships, the one constant is the God of heaven and earth. And that's where you want to put all of your eggs in the, that basket. That's where you want to invest everything into. And the time, you do it today, you do it tomorrow. Every day, every waking moment, we're to be aware that we are before the gaze of God. So to trust in the Lord like a child, 
It's the invitation God gives to us here. It's to recognize that he is God. And we are not. He is God and you are not. He is God and I am not. It's understanding that we owe him. Not that he needs anything from us, but are you glad you can breathe right now? If your back doesn't hurt, are you happy about that? Um, uh, you're clothed. Uh, do you have any kind of comforts? Do you have anything that brings you joy in your life? We all have something that brings us joy in our lives, right? That couldn't be possible without the gift of God giving you the gift of life. Whether you're a believer or not, it, it comes from him. This is not an accident. This is, we, it's not an accident. It's designed. It's ultimately coming to bend the knee to David's shepherd, who he didn't know as Christ Jesus because Jesus had not manifested yet. But it is Jesus. Let me tell you why Jesus is exclusive. Because of who he is. He is the God-man. Fully divine, fully human. Came to show us the Father. Properly interpreted the law to us. Came to his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to those, God gave them the right to become children of God. Not by the will of man, or through the agency of man, but by the will of God. David's son is Jesus of Nazareth. Before he is Messiah, he is God the Son. Don't forget that. He has many titles. Prophet, priest, king, he is God. And because of who he is, he demands absolute allegiance. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Nobody else did that. Nobody else could do it. He's the Lamb of God that alone atones for our sins. He's the one who alone conquered the tomb. He's the high priest who ever lives to make intercession on behalf of his own. He's the prophet, Moses said, if you don't listen to him, you're going to die. He's the true king who's coming back in the clouds with glory and power to judge the living and the dead. He is the warrior who will wage war against the nations who hate him and slay them 
with the sword of his mouth, with one word. Did you hear what I said? With one word? God created with one word. Don't think it is any coincidence that this book is under attack, ignored, as it can't be from God. It was written by men. Okay. Did you just, are you a man? Did you just say that? Should I believe anything you said because you're a man? There's way more to it here. At the, at the end of the day, the implications are this. If this is true, you're in a world of hurt. And I'm not laughing at that you're in a world of hurt. I'm laughing at what came to my mind and I thought, no, that's not a good thing to say you're preaching. Okay? But it really would have gotten the point across, I think, in a different way. You're in a world of hurt. You are, you are bummed. You are, you're, you're, it's, it's the worst possible place you can be in. So he's the one who says to the burdened soul, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In that chapter, you've got three different sections. The first section, you've got John the Baptist saying, Hey, Jesus, are you Messiah or not? Did I miss it? And so Jesus goes and does his works and he says, Tell John the, the deaf here, the lame walk, uh, etc. Then he goes and he preaches to the cities that reject his message. That reject his message, which was accompanied by acts of power and healings. And then in the third section, he breaks out into worship and to praise to God the Father. For this, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things. What things? Who he is and what his message meant. From the wise and the learned... Who were the wise and the learned? More likely than not, the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, okay? Who had an interpretation of the law that skewered it and misrepresented it. And he's saying, and you have revealed them unto babes. And then he talks about nobody knows the Father except the Son, and nobody knows the, the Son, ex uh, yeah, nobody knows the Father except the Son. That nobody can know the Father or the Son unless the Father and the Son reveal each other to them. And so Jesus ends this by saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. So what you have here is, first of all, the general call. He preaches the gospel to those cities. They reject him. And then you've got what's called the effectual call. Those that are his, in fact, will come and learn from the Master himself. What Jesus is saying is, I am God incarnate. I am the final word. Come to me and let my constraints be put on you, not the constraints of the creature that can only bind you up with their thoughts and patterns of twisting what I have said. Pharisees and Sadducees. What Jesus is saying here is kind of the same thing we've been, we say all the time in one way or another. God is the ground of all reality. 
The way he communicates that is through his word, both in scripture, little book, and in creation, big book. The fingerprints of God are everywhere. They are placed in each and every one of us who are born by God, according to Romans 1. And you can't get away from that. The question is, at the end of the day, when you put your head to sleep, you've got to answer this question. What are you going to do with Jesus of Nazareth? He's not just a man. He's not. And he's no lunatic. He's no devil. He's the Lord of glory who in space and time came and he said, come. And he's telling you guys here, come. Come. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day to lay down your burdens. What are you carrying? What burdens are you carrying? Christian, what are you holding on to? Is it so precious to you that, you're, that, that you just can't let go of it? And it is putting a chasm between your relationship with God and your relationship with your brothers and sisters or somebody else. And those of you that don't believe, and I know there's several of you here, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you die? You don't know when your last breath is. Are you kidding me? When I first became a Christian, this was part of my arsenal. <laughs> but it's true. It was, didn't change from then to, to right now. You're going to die. I'm going to die. That's the last enemy. Jesus conquered it. Well, nobody knows uh, what happens after death because... <laughs> Shut up, man. What are you talking about? How do you know? How do you know? Because you're listening to somebody's word. Is what they're saying true? Can you live out the implications of their worldview? Do you see, do you see any disparities? Yeah. We're all going to die. But if we belong to Jesus, we don't have to fear it. That no man can give to us. Only the man Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit, through God the Spirit. And because no man can give it to us, no man can take it away. It's not a physical thing. It manifests in the physical realm, but it's not physical. It's the life of God. And that life, he calls us to come and follow. Which means Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And that's in chapter 11. In chapter 16, he goes, you want to come after me? You got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you love, if you love family and children and Anything else created more than me. You're not worthy of me. My interpretation is, you're not mine. That doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle with it as a believer. No, that's the point is, you realize Jesus is the treasure and everything else is just dust. Until we see that, 
We can't love him. We can't want to walk with him. But if you have seen that and you, and you find that your heart's gotten kind of cold, well, repent. Repent. And ask God to forgive you. He's good. He really is good. So is your soul wearied and bruised? Because mine is. Come to Jesus. Is your strength drained because of hardships? Come to Jesus. Have you strayed in your heart from God? Return to Jesus. Have you ever surrendered your life to Jesus? Don't wait too long. Because the day is coming when if you don't bow your knee, you will on that day. And he will justly condemn you. Not because he's unjust, but because he is just. We cry for justice. I want justice. It's like, let me tell you something. Mercy is being offered right now. Receive it. Cry out for it. Do what the, the, the guy said to Jesus. Uh, uh, you know, do you, Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? And he goes, uh, 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 Jesus, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Maybe that's a good prayer this morning. Let's pray. Father, um, you are the God of life. And you have revealed yourself to us. What will we do with that? What will we do? Father, I pray that we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of our Creator and that in due time you would exalt us as we cast all our care on you because you care for us, for those that do not believe, that do not have fiducia, that don't trust Jesus. Lord, move, move in their hearts. Don't let them, don't let them perish. Don't let them perish. And for those who have walked with you and are pretty trashed, renew them. Strengthen them. Renew hope in them. And I pray this for your namesake, Lord so that your name might be hallowed among the nations and we might be the recipients of the joy of, of being part of that. Amen. this service in a few minutes by singing a hymn there's a fountain and I just feel like I, I have to do this because I want us to not just sing it but to sing it and Serge 
I had no idea what he was going to preach today. And he didn't have any say on this song, did he? Okay. But it's not an accident about how we're going to close this service and what we're going to sing. I mean, I think if David were diagnosed today in the way that we do, many would probably diagnose him as a manic depressive who loved the Lord. And we're going to sing a song that was written in 1772, almost 250 years ago, by a man who, before he came to the Lord, experienced such depths of darkness in his soul, tried to end his life a few times, And there was another soul who was a horrific human being like all of us, but manifested even greater than most of us by being a slave trading captain of a ship who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, and he was a pastor, and he reached out to William Cowper. And he came to the Lord, and he had times of great joy. But for decades, as a believer, he found himself back in the cave with out-of-the-blue overwhelming depression and feeling of hopelessness. And he was gifted. He was gifted as a poet. And his source, as we heard this morning again and again, his source was the Bible. His hope, the Lord. And so he, he penned what we're going to sing. And I just want to give you the foundation of what Cowper was looking at. From Zechariah. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, we read this. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, Yahweh, on him whom they have pierced on the cross, they shall mourn for him. On that day there shall be a fountain, a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And he looks to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 1. In Him, in Jesus, in Christ, the one whom they pierced, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. And so in a moment, just hear the words that we're going to sing. For all of us who have loved His appearing, we're going to sing from the depths of our hearts. Cowper. A brother in the Lord writes for us. There is a fountain of Zechariah. There is a fountain filled 
with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day by Jesus on this cross next to him. And there have I, here's Cowper's hope, though vile is he, washed all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God are safe to sin no more. When this poor lisping, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be until I die. Let's stand and sing it with all of our hearts. Thank you.